founders and board members and like the leading voices in the industry. I'm a communications person, so I've had to dance this line of I'm not a technologist, but I have to understand technology and be able to translate it into a way that other non-technologists might be able to understand. Who is this kind of bouncy woman in the boardroom? I'm super interested in how this is gonna impact the security industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cybersecurity Stand-Up. I'm your host, Bronwyn Hudson. I'm the social media manager at Upsix, and today I have a person on board with me who is a amazing person that I've been following on LinkedIn for a little while. Her name is Becca Chambers. Um, I think most people who are going to listen to this probably have heard of you, but just in case they haven't, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to where you are in the industry? Uh, so I am a um, communications and brand leader focused mostly on security for the past 15 years, but generally enterprise tech. And my path has not been linear. I started in sports PR, actually, which was super fun and exhausting and a great first PR job, but maybe not the best for once you want to just not be traveling around and sure doing fun things all of the time. But I did get to travel with the athletes and be, you know, front uh, front row seat to all the action, which was fun, like UFC and things like that. Um, but yes, then... Um, I pivoted around, went back to grad school, and then um, I actually got my start in security at McAfee as an exec comms manager. And it just kind of happened. Like, I just fell into that. Um, I moved back to the Bay Area for that job. And I ended up doing the communications for, like, people who turned out to be industry luminaries. So Dave DeWalt and George Kurtz and Dmitry Alperovich and Stu McClure, like, all these people who are now, you know, founders and board members and, like, the leading voices in the industry. I traveled with them, and I really I created their comms, and I, like, created their voice. And I so I got this kind of backstage pass to the cybersecurity world in, like, my first few years in cybersecurity, which was lucky, right? I mean, I attribute a lot of my career to just serendipity, but it made me really love the industry to get to do that. It's exciting. It's fun. And I just stuck with security. So I bounced around in all of the various communications and marketing roles um, and eventually found myself as one of the kind of early promoters of zero trust. And again, like timing worked out. It formed a pretty deep relationship with, uh, Forrester's Chase Cunningham at the time, he was the one promoting Zero Trust. And since then, I've led a number of cybersecurity communications and corporate communications teams and corporate marketing teams and become known. So you say, as someone who understands the nuance of security messaging and how to actually cut through kind of the noise and the vendors, because we all know that everyone's basically saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, I think just for your audience, I'm a communications person. So I've had to dance this line of, I'm not a technologist, but I have to understand technology and be able to translate it into a way that other non-technologists might be able to understand or up-level it for a board-level audience. And so part of what has helped me be successful in the role is um, seeking to build strong relationships with product teams and with executive teams and with sales teams so that I can understand the bigger picture and then tell the story of my company, our products and our execs and all of that. So here I am. So cool. You have such a fascinating background. And I have to say um, that I think recently you were... I guess they do it by just, um, I don't know how actually LinkedIn does it. I should probably know that. But you were named as a top corporate communications voice on LinkedIn. That's cool. Like, congratulations. And you were also recently quoted in the Wall Street Journal. 
Amazing. Um, So cool. But you know, that actually leads me to this question that I just want to like dive into this with you, which is I I find that a lot of folks who aren't necessarily like they have an engineering background or something, they and they're working on that. Yeah, translation, as you say, between like technical and non-technical. But I don't know, I'm starting to think that actually, maybe you are just a secretly technical person. But because you've come up in communications, it doesn't feel like that. Can you speak to like, what do you think that big difference is? That's a really good question. And I think that's what, I mean, I think that's what, and I tell this to people who I, you know, mentor people on my teams, like what sets good communicators apart from everybody else is being able to like go that extra mile to understand your products and use the products if you can. And I got lucky because of my background in analyst relations, because being in analyst conversations with the product teams, with your executives, like you're seeing the the strategy side and the, where is our very special slice of the market and all of that. And when I saw that, I was suddenly like, wow, all of these insights that we're doing here, I can use this in my messaging for just different, broader audiences. And when I started doing that, all of a sudden, everyone's like, damn, like, wow, Becca's so smart. But it's not that I'm so smart. It's just that I was taking information from one place and applying it to somewhere else. So to your question, you know, am I technical? I'm not technical, but I'm able to understand kind of the broader importance of different technical things. So if, you know, and when I was in identity, for example, like I can explain what we do in broader strokes. Can I get into the like nitty gritty? Would, Would I be on a security podcast focused on like how to secure your organization? Probably not, but, um, from like the, can I take what the product marketing team is trying to convey and turn that into something that everybody can understand? Yeah. For sure. Love that. And that's like a huge like skill set in and of itself. You know, that ability to translate, that's, that's absolutely invaluable. So I want to also ask you about like your career. Obviously, you've kind of skipped around a little bit. You kind of like fell into certain things. If you could go back in time a little bit, Five, 10 years, whatever you, whatever you think, like, what would you tell yourself? Would you do anything differently? I I love this question because yes. And I would say most of the things I would not have done differently, but the thing that I would tell myself is that trying to be like everybody else is actually what holds you back and being authentic to who I am and trusting my gut. That's actually what helps me soar. And I think at some point over the past decade, I don't know exactly when, but I realized that I was spending all of this energy trying to fit a mold that I thought was, this is what a communications executive looks like. And I didn't really fit this mold of what I thought I was supposed to be. And I've always felt like that my whole life. Um, And that made it so I wasn't reaching my potential because I wasn't using my voice in the places that I should because other people weren't either. So I've ADD and... ADHD. Um, and until I really understood how that impacted my day to day, I was just like faking it every single day. And I was trying to be what I thought I was supposed to be rather than what I actually was. So when I started looking at, um, how I could better tailor, like, okay, now I know I have ADHD. How do I, um, embrace that and tailor my style of learning and working. Um, and that's made such an incredible difference to my mental health and my success in my job, because I understood that if I can figure out workarounds for the areas that I struggle with and like empower myself in the areas that I'm strong, I could actually do amazing things that other people can't do. And I think that's when I kind of light bulb went off. And this is like, you know, an anecdote, but I had this influential CMO um, advocate for me one time, maybe five years ago. Um, I was fidgeting in a meeting or something and another executive said something to her like, oh, Becca is not paying attention. And whenever I'm in meetings with Becca, like maybe she's not paying attention. And my boss like 
clapped back to him and said something like, Becca might look like she's not paying attention, but her mind is going a million miles a minute, and I promise you that she's already three steps ahead of the rest of us. Just let her do her thing and see what happens. Yes. And she's right. And like that moment kind of changed my perspective because I'm like, holy shit, like my version of process and productivity might not look like what everybody else's does, but the outcomes are kick-ass, maybe even better than what other people did. So to answer your original question, if I could go back five or 10 years, I'd lean into being me sooner and waste a lot less time trying to be what I thought everyone else wanted me to be because it's allowed me, especially in cybersecurity, to be an out-of-the-box thinker and like break through things with these kind of big ideas because it's an industry kind of growing up um, also. So anyway, uh, the leaning, it's such a cheesy thing, be yourself, but no, but like leaning into like who you want to be rather than who you think everybody wants you to be is just so important. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And I think, uh, yeah, I wish I, I could tell myself 10 years ago that same thing. And I'm glad that you've given that advice because hopefully someone who's out there right now is like, okay, noted, you know, and they can take that advice sooner than we did. Um, I'd love to ask you more about, you know, being a openly neurodiverse woman in this industry as well. Like did, and I mean, it's so great that you had a CMO who was able to like actively advocate for you like in that, in that moment, but were there any, I mean, t- tell us about that. Have you struggled with that? Like, are you, what's it like being open about that? Yeah. So, you know, what's funny is that same CMO, when she became my boss at the first company we worked at together, she didn't like me. And she thought I was like, she was like, what does Becca do? Like, she couldn't understand like what my role was. And everybody else was like, don't mess with Becca. Like, like let her do her thing because she's adding so much value, so much value. Like six months later, this same woman, um, maybe a year later hired me to her next company because in that short amount of time, she's like, oh, wow, again, Becca looks like, it looks different, but like, it is so good. Um, So I just think, yes, it has held me back in the way that there is a misunderstanding of um, how people need to be. And I constantly battle this um, feeling of, I mean, obviously so many of us have imposter syndrome, but I also have this kind of, um, this constant nagging fear, like, I need to pretend, I need to play a role, right? And I know, again, in every uh, role that people have, you have to play some kind of part in order to fit in. But when you're neurodivergent, like you spend all of your effort trying to fit in. So none of your brain power then can go to the things that you actually need to accomplish or to the really impressive problem-solving abilities that you have. Um, And I, again, luck, serendipity, I work in cybersecurity, and in cybersecurity, there are way more neurodivergent people. 100%. We are one of the most neurodiverse industries that exist, and that's because it was founded in, you know, a bunch of misfits and outsiders who tend to embrace people that are different. Um, And I think that that has also allowed me, as a quirky or whatever, Becca's a little different woman to thrive. Because if I worked in finance or healthcare or somewhere where I had to be super buttoned up, Mm. I wouldn't have made it anywhere because people would just be like, what is, who is this kind of bouncy woman in the boardroom? Like she, you know, she shouldn't be in the boardroom, but if you listen to me and you let me share my ideas, I am adding just as much, if not more value than, you know, the buttoned up dude next to me. So I just think, um, 
being in cybersecurity, and this is something I could wax on about because the cybersecurity industry does have this opportunity to kind of lead the world in neurodiverse advocacy and um, accommodation because there are so many of us. So um, my advice to neurodivergent people is twofold. One, do something that you like doing because then you get the, you know, the dopamine going um, because you're interested in it. And two, work in a place where there are other quirky, weird, different, um, diverse people because don't try to be the round peg in the square hole, right? Go find a place where they like round pegs. And I think that um, that's like an important thing and it's not fair and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And like, we shouldn't like fight upstream when we're already dealing with enough, you know, shit and hard stuff to navigate in a neurotypical world. Um, And I'm just going to drop this another anecdote. A few years ago, I read um, about a British intelligence and the the British intelligence and cybersecurity agency that I can't remember the acronym for um, is actively recruiting specifically dyslexic people. And that's because they found that their dyslexic employees were way better able to see patterns and identify anomalies and see big picture themes and come up with like complex future scenario solutions and novel approaches. So now they're like, well, shit, we need more of these people. Let's go hire neurodiverse and and dyslexic people. And I just think like we cybersecurity should be kind of leading the charge on that because there's so many of us already and we embrace people like that. So come work with us. We don't care if you're working in the middle of the night, go for it. Like, you know, you want to, um, uh, be off camera or I need to give you interview questions in advance. Cool. I bet your problem solving will sound much more interesting in the interview. If I give you a chance to actually think about it and you know, I don't know. Now I'm doing my ADHD rambling, but I could talk about this topic all day long because I really feel like we should be um, like not just like embracing it, but like actively recruiting and hiring and changing the way that we support and accommodate neurodiverse people in security. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I'd love to hear, too, about I mean, obviously, because you're talking about these things like openly on LinkedIn, you have this advantage where you're probably finding other people who are, are neurodiverse and also in cyber. Um, can you speak to like what it's like to try to build a community of, of neurodiverse people and, and how you do that? Yeah, I think because there is a stigma around neurodiversity and people don't feel like, you know, it's invisible yeah. usually, or it can be invisible. So people don't feel like, comfortable talking about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And as I was at my current company, which, uh, has been, you know, um, embracing this conversation, I've been able to open up people's eyes to this can be a conversation. And the number of people who came to me and say things like, I can't tell you how important like your words have been on my journey. And it's not because, you know, they didn't know they were neurodivergent or they're, they're just, it's just that they're like, there is suddenly somebody in the room who has a voice at the table who is sharing that they are like me. And yeah. suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, there are other people that are like me and they're talking about it and that's not a bad thing. And so when I started getting that feedback internally and then I was going on my own journey, neurodivergent understanding, and my son has ADHD and dyslexia. So we were going through his journey of understanding. I started realizing that there's just like a void of information out there. And there's certainly a void of information in the intersection of neurodiversity and work. And there's a lot of talk about diversity initiatives and there's so little talk about neurodiversity initiatives. And I just think that that needs to be part of the discussion. And 
you know that when you're a company, you need to have wheelchair access for all of your employees. That's again, something visible, but what kind of access do your neurodivergent employees need? They have to advocate for themselves. And again, like, Yes, it might not be fair, but at least if we create some sort of awareness and understanding that, hey, maybe 20% of your employees are neurodivergent, that's a huge opportunity for you to do small things. And that's the other thing is neurodivergent accommodations are so cheap and inexpensive. It's like, you know, allowing people to be off camera or allowing them to work from home, like things that barely cost you anything and can change their lives and make them super loyal and want to work for you. So anyway, there's all of these topics. No one's talking or not. Nobody, few people are talking about it. And so when I did start talking about it, all of these people from outside, like, you know, parents of people at my kid's school are like, Hey, I saw what you're talking about on LinkedIn. And can we talk more about this? Will you come to my company and talk to our staff about this. And just, I realized that there was just this untapped potential. I started talking about it in the media. I did a survey with my company about neurodivergent people and it's just like a huge appetite. So again, lucky, right place, right time, just talking about this thing. But then I tapped into all of these other neurodivergent people that are talking about it online and I'm learning from them and they're learning from me and we're sharing our experience. And it's just created this kind of like um, effect where it's building on each other and other people appreciate the fact that somebody is being vocal and not being shy about it. Yes. And I, I've had people tell me like, you know, lots of people have ADHD and don't make it their whole personality and things like that. And I'm like, I didn't make it my personality is my personality. Like I found out way later that all of the things I thought were my personality are basically just ADHD traits and that's okay. And like, I do have a lot of shame in things I'm not great at. Laundry will sit on my bed for three weeks if my husband doesn't come and do it for me. But also like I kick ass at creativity and strategy. So like, you know, balance, right? And if I don't talk about it, who's going to talk about it? Somebody has to talk about it. So, you know, I'm out there uh, spreading the good word. And it's also therapeutic for me to talk about it because... I'm going through my own journey of discovery. And the more I talk about it, the more authentic to myself I am too. When I'm like, I wrote the other day about my imposter syndrome in getting into the Wall Street Journal. I'm so cool. I got into the Wall Street Journal. But it's like, but you didn't do that because of anything you did. It was just the right place at the right time. And you happened to say something that was interesting. And I'm like, why? Like, why do we doubt (laughs) doubt ourselves in that way? But Can um, Can you imagine like saying that to anyone else it's like it's something that you would only say to yourself yourself you're so mean to yourself and like your brain is just like well let me just rewrite that story completely for you but no I, I loved how you turned that around for yourself though and like made that point into another post about how you were like no actually this yeah. was me I did this that was such a great thing to see that sort of like transformation there Also, there's this notion, and I don't think this is just true of people with ADHD. I think it's probably true of all people. But when you have these things that feel like giant flaws or shortcomings, you hyper-focus on the bad and you just cannot see the good stuff. Yeah, right. Why? Like, it's if I'm so good at 90 things and I suck at 10 things, why are the 10 things the only thing that I can attribute to myself? Like, I don't understand how that is. And that is something I actively work on myself to try to fix. And I am an executive with thin skin and I will admit that. And you're not supposed to say that, right? You're supposed to have thick skin. And the thing is, is like, I can have hard conversations and I can have confrontation and I can have people come and give me direct feedback and I can 
use that and fuel it for, you know, changing my strategy or adjusting or whatever, but it's also going to eat at me. It's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And I can go and then replay it in my head for the rest of my life. I guarantee you I will. Um, in fact, can I tell you another anecdote? I'm an anecdote fire today. So I was in an interview, um, like 2017 or something. So a while ago, and I had gone through like 10 rounds. It was a job I really liked. It was a cool tech, all of that. Um, I went all the way to the top, weeks and weeks of prep and work and all of that. I built out, you know, short-term, long-term strategies and all the things. I had to go interview with the CEO as like the final round, just like a quick 30 minute. He had to sign off. Um, he's like a famous CEO. And so I was naturally stressed out, of course go to the meeting. I've prepped myself. I'm poised. I'm all of that. And I can show you because you're here, but I had my, you know, my tea in my hand like this. Uh -huh. And I was literally essentially doing this with the, like fidgeting with the, um, paper on the end of the tea bag. Yeah. Nailed every question, poised. I was focused on the eye contact, everything. I walked out. I was like, I killed it. The hiring manager comes out. He's like, I'm so sorry. Like that. There was no waiting period. He walks me to the elevator. I'm so sorry. He, you know, he was bothered by the fidgeting and he thought that that just meant that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't represent us well to the media and analysts. And I was just like, are you kidding me right now? I, I, I could not believe it. And that, I mean, that is like in me like a splinter forever. Like it's never going away. Just this thing that now like you can bet your ass that if I'm in an interview, I am laser focused on just my body posture. And imagine how much that's taking away from my ability to actually tell you what you want to know about my ability to do the job rather than my ability not to fidget while I talk to you, which is bananas. That is so bananas. Like if I had gone into that, and so here's another lesson. If I'd gone into that meeting and say, look, I have ADHD, <laughs> I tend to fidget a little bit. And if I'm not making eye contact with you, it's because I'm thinking, like if I'm looking straight at your eyes, it might be distracting. That would have disarmed him, right? And it would have, mm -hmm. I mean, he still probably would have been like, this girl isn't wow. for us because clearly I dodged a bullet there. But at least I could show up as my authentic self and not have to focus on the not fidgeting or making eye contact. So again, lesson learned, but you focus on the shame instead of the good and all the way. We have to maybe say like his loss on that one, right? Because I like to think so. And I would have brought, given the makeup of the team, I would have brought an amazing energy and an amazing, you know, like passion. Like they were kind of like ho-hum, like they were, really into their products, but like, I would have been like the, the ignition, you know? And yes, they're missing out on that. You need the ADHD girl to come in and just like light all the fires. And some companies want that and some companies don't, or they don't know that they do. Yeah, that's it. That's the dismount. Totally. Within the sort of like LinkedIn community that you've built within the folks that you know, especially people who are maybe doing a good job talking about neurodiversity, talking about different hiring practices, this kind of stuff. Is there anyone in the industry that you really look up to or admire? Wow. I've actually never thought about that. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the, like, I feel like there are a bunch of influence influencers yeah. um in the ADHD space that I think are bigger on Instagram and I'm not on TikTok but you know that that's yeah. where it's really happening and they're starting <clears throat> 
to translate in a meaningful way into LinkedIn. And that has given me an opportunity to connect with them because on Instagram, they've got millions of followers on LinkedIn. They're just starting to build their presence there. And so I'm starting to connect with these folks who otherwise I was just an observer. And now I get to have conversations with them. And that has actually been um, really cool because they've been, they are influencers. I don't consider myself an influencer in this space. I just consider myself kind of like a big mouth in this space. And (laughs) like, I don't know. They're good at like packaging up the experience of neurodiversity in like very digestible ways. And I'm, I'm, I'm just sharing my thoughts. So I haven't really like gone that route yet. Anyway, it's just, for me, it's just been kind of like exciting to, um, to start to like build those bridges with these people who I do. And again, like, I don't, I don't even know what their names are like off the top of my head. There's just like a few people, Jesse and Alex are like two people. I don't even know what their last names are. Um, but I think that's a good tip. Yeah. Yes. And they're both now on LinkedIn too. I could probably look it up and tell you who they are. Um, but, um, I don't remember where I was going with that. Hashtag ADHD. Love it. We'll drop them in the show notes when we find out. Yeah, totally. It reminds me too that, um, I mean, you were, you were saying before that the conversation around ADHD happening, I would say on a broader scale, societally speaking, but as that kind of seeps into different industries, cybersecurity is like the perfect example of where better hiring practices, more diverse hiring practices, like can be an awesome part of that. So when we look forward into 2024, which is like kind of creeping up on us, I have to say, do you have, I guess, like, I don't know. Can, can you give us like a hope and a fear, maybe like something that you're really looking forward to about 2424, but also maybe like a, maybe a security fear or something that you are hoping doesn't happen? I have two kind of things. One is, um, I hope mm-hmm. that after these past many, many years, people finally understand that security isn't a, like nice to have. Like I still sit in meetings where I hear people looking to cut budget and they're like, oh, we can take it from the security team who's already massively underfunded and understaffed and whatever. And to me, it's like, at what point does this become a priority? We've been talking about how it's a boardroom priority forever. And I'm looking at 2024 and I'm looking at the most contentious U.S. election and I'm looking at geopolitical situations right now with particularly prickly adversaries. And I just see a perfect storm brewing for all of these things that we've said that are going to happen, happening, whether that's electric grid stuff or voting system stuff or taking us off the internet or supply chain issues, whatever those things are, like, I kind of just see this perfect storm coming and I see AI coming on the scene as this new way to just hit us in vectors that we hadn't anticipated or with more maturity or you know, complexity or whatever. And so my kind of like big fear is just this, like, are we hardening ourselves for that specifically? Because we have for the last however long been hardening our systems and getting ready for this and that, but like, it's here, like the, 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 that is here. Like I see this as like, now is the time to make sure. And I don't know that we can. And that is such like a doomsday thing to say. I'm not supposed to say that as a security comms person, but, um, I just, check, though. Yeah. yeah. Do we give a shit and are we going to solve it or are we just going to keep dragging our feet and, you know, being 10 years behind where we need to be? Um, because, you know, cloud came on the scene and it took us 10 years to figure out how to, you know, we're still figuring out how do we uh, secure the cloud and yeah. I, AI now, 
bring it on. We're just yeah. a whole new thing. If you could tell, if you could get a message across to, let's just say the majority of the U.S. population about security, like what would that sort of fundamental piece of communication be? What do you wish everyone knew? People can't see cybersecurity, right? And it's really hard for people to care about something that is elusive or something that is theoretical or something yeah. that should matter. And here's the thing that I talk about frequently with my parents who are in their 70s and they understand now cybersecurity better than most people thanks to listening to me wax about it for the last 15 years. Uh -huh. My dad ran water and sewer systems. That was what he did for a living. Um, security is like the sewer system and not because it's shitty though. There is a little bit of that. Um, the analogy is that, and hear me out, it's messy, it's not glamorous, and it's not anything that any of us want to think about, and it's not something that we see regularly, right? It's, as an average employee, we interact with it, and we benefit from it daily, but, like, we don't see it, and we don't see the inner workings, and we don't want to see the inner workings. Despite all these things, it's absolutely freaking essential, yeah. and just like the sewage and the water systems, no one ever wants to fund upgrades or maintenance or whatever until something goes wrong, and the pipe breaks, or the sewage is backed up and flowing into the street, and then suddenly everybody cares about the sewage, and it's a freaking emergency, and we need to fix it and upgrade it and find the funding. If they just cared earlier, could have avoided all of the mess and disaster in the first place. Prioritize it, keep the sewage running, because we can't live without plumbing and we can't live without security. And it's becoming more apparent. And I, you know, my dad used to just literally complain about this constantly. You know, if we were the electric company, everybody would care because everybody sees that and we see the, and it, it's exactly the perfect analogy. It's like, totally. we are the sewage system. We are, com it, you're completely reliant on us not backing up, but you know, you don't want to until the shit's in your house. Dang, that is absolutely fire analogy. But like, we're also, where do we go from that? I mean, did your dad have any advice about like how to get that message through people's heads? At, well, this is like the comms lady speaking. And my dad loves this about me is that I'm all about the advocacy and awareness, right? And how do you take this elusive theoretical thing and make it personal. How does this matter to you, grandma? Why should grandma care about security? Okay, let's talk about your employees. Why is it imperative that your you know, social media manager gives a shit about security? She just wants to do her job. She just wants to get her shit done. She just wants to do a good job in her job. She doesn't want to waste time with your security hoops and whatever. But if there is some sort of buy-in to this is also my responsibility, which is true for lots of things in business, you know? Yeah. I think that that's how you change hearts and minds. How do we do it? It's like an entire industry-wide right. movement. And it goes back to people within our industry don't even prioritize it still. So it's like, the messaging isn't working, I think is the short answer. And like the sewage analogy, when 2024, God, me trying to like not catastrophize, but you know, when the shit starts backing up into the house, suddenly everyone's going to care. And I just think we've been warning, like the industry, we've been warning and warning and everyone's like, yeah, but nothing really bad's happened. A few hospitals have been ransomware, but that doesn't impact me. Wait until you don't have electricity or, you know, the uh, airlines are down for two months and we can't fly. I don't know, whatever catastrophe we can think of. Then it affects me. Now I care. Such a tough one there because I feel like, I mean, I know exactly what you mean. 
and I think about the fear-mongering and like the urgency and it's just such a negative place for communications to go, which I mean, but it's also true. So it's like, how can we find a good balance of being appropriately urgent, appropriately realistic about what's going to happen if we don't take preventative action in, in the security world. But I also don't want to go around there freaking people out. I, I, I mean, any, any comment on like how, no. to, how to do that? I, well, it's interesting because security security marketing has gone through so many evolutions. And it started with fear. Like when we wanted everyone to care about security, it was just fear-mongering. And then there was like a sudden shift in the industry to Fear-mongering is bad. We don't yeah. do that anymore. We don't all want to have red, scary logos. We all want, we want to, like, you know, evangelize security to, you know, it's a business issue. And it is. And I think, like, and then, you know, we've evolved back into there are scare tactics. What I think needs to happen, really, honestly, is it just needs to become part of, like, everybody's conversation. It needs yeah. to not be stuck in, like, business industry or this is how we make sure that, um, you know, a bat, like, you know, like operational stuff. Like, it's not that it is like something we all need to care about the way we all are supposed to care about, you know, the military or things that keep us safe or, you know, whatever, until it's part of the collective kind of conscience consciousness. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it moves beyond the boardroom or beyond these kind of siloed conversations where people give a shit about it. And I, I don't think we've moved that far in 15 years other than now there's a solid awareness that it's a problem. People just still don't care about it. Like, yeah, we know it's a problem now, but like, uh, and it's hard. Like, I don't think that like, this is another thing my dad, if he ever listens to this, he's going to be so irritated. But my dad likes to be like, well, why don't they just do this? And it's just like, if that was the answer, I mean, they'd have done it. It's not easy. It's hard. And in a lot of these systems, security is put in after the fact. It's not built in because security is new and the stuff is new and the way that we protect ourselves is always changing. And so I just think it needs to become part of the culture of the rest of the way that we do business is, all right, we're changing our marketing tactics. We have to change our security tactics and we have to invest in them in the same way that we invest in our other lines of business. Well said. That's kind of a mic drop. Yeah. I mean, and I agree. I, I agree that it, 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 there is no one solution. There's not going to be some penny that drops and we're like, ah, now, now we figure out how to get everyone to care about it. You're right. It's hard and it's going to probably continue to be hard because stuff is going to continue to change. Um, I did have a conversation with, um, with our CISO actually at Uptix and he mentioned how um, the conversation around generative AI, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on like in general, but how that's been this like, I mean, lots of opinions immediately like swirling, lots of thoughts, but it's also been in a positive way, an entry point for people kind of into a broader conversation mm -hmm. about what's happening in tech and like how that's impacting cybersecurity. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's happening with generative AI, dive in. So also something I'm super interested in and have like no, like I have my dabbling, right? But I have no actual like industry experience in AI because none of the companies I've worked at have done much in the world of AI. I mean, all of us have talked about, you know, oh, with machine learning is built into our whatever, like yeah. old AI that we all used to tout because that was the cool thing to do. Totally. But like truly generative AI stuff, I, I'm super interested in how this is going to impact the security industry. And it's something that like, this is why, like, I think we're about to hit a new phase in the security industry where now messaging has to change and it's not all going to be the same zero trust and sassy and whatever. Like now the conversation shifts to how does AI 
what's scary about AI? Like what, where does that create more, um, risk, but also how did, how do we use it to our advantage? And it's like both sides of the coin. And because I don't know that much about it, I'm like chomping at the bit to get in, you know, and, and get my hands dirty with how does this all work and how do these things interplay and having the conversation with the analysts who are also trying to figure it out because nobody really knows. And that brings me to like, how do I use generative AI? Like I do constantly, and I'm just doing it for like two to use it, like just because I'm like, okay, there's this new tool, let's play with it, right? And I'm like, I like to play with things, so let's play with it. And um, this is what I talked to the Wall Street Journal about, actually what we talked mostly about was how can be a tool for neurodivergent people? And I use it in so many ways that I used to have to use my friends or notebooks or hours of, you know, ruminating to get to the same place that now I can like, I can literally have conversations with ChatGPT that just help me figure out what I'm trying to say in a post, right? Like I can word vomit all my thoughts and be like, what is the main point I'm trying to say? And it will summarize it. And then I can go put that into my words. And it's just like, this helps my process because it helps me get started in some ways when sometimes I'm just like my executive functioning doesn't work and I'm swirling with ideas and I don't know where to start. And I'm just scratching the surface on how this can help. Imagine, I mean, here's another great example. Um, If you work somewhere where it's very global and there's lots of accents and things like that, I have faced multiple times employees saying, look, our CEO talks really fast and because, you know, I live in Ukraine, I can't, you know, I can't keep up with her accent. Now you can get subtitles that are being generated by AI that capture accents perfectly. So I can talk to somebody who's got a really thick accent and I'm having a hard time deciphering and it will just write it out for me so that we can then have a perfectly easy dialogue without that friction. As a neurodivergent person, I have audit processing issues. So like I can't watch TV without um, captions or subtitles. Same thing with talking to people, right? Like if I can have the words there, it's so helpful. And the AI has changed the game on that. Like five years ago, translations and captions was like, oh, the most tedious thing. And now it's everywhere. When you combine all of these things in some make a huge difference in your life. When all of these hard things can just be a little bit easier, it's just like, I don't know, I planned my vacation using ChatGPT, which was awesome. That's actually what they ended up using in the Wall Street Journal because um, I get stressed out about like, okay, if I want to be there at this time, what time do I have to leave? And then we have to have breakfast and all that. So I just had it schedule me all the things I wanted to do, build out little time blocks of how long it would take to do things, walk to the car with this much. And did we stick to the exact schedule? No, but it gave me that. So I had zero anxiety. I didn't have to go research everything. You know, I fact checked to make sure everything was real and it was, but it made this planning process that would have taken me a month of, again, ruminating and stressing and going back and forth, kind of like narrowed down into two days. And then I was done. And I was like, what, who am I? Look at me, I'm so productive. I love I love that so much because I think that speaks to what I see as a very positive intersection between human creativity and AI, right? Like you had the idea, you had the 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 all of the working parts of the plan, you just subbed what is the annoying part of that task for you out to the machine. But like you still had the the ingenuity to to come up with that and do a prompt for that. It's fantastic. Yes. I mean, I see AI as a partner, a partner tool to me, right? Not as a replacement for anything. And like you said, 
take away some of the tedious stuff, right? And if you're not using it, it's like, but why? Like, yeah. I can look in my refrigerator and just write down the ingredients I have and it will spit out a recipe for me. Or I could go spend 45 minutes Googling for a recipe that sounds good. Like, yeah. it just, it makes things easier. Why are you not using it. And something you said, I'm using what's available to me right now, but I mean, absolutely there are concerns. And I think it's the responsibility of some industry, the way that cybersecurity came up, to figure that out. Like people smarter than me need to figure that out. And I would love to be a part of that conversation. Don't get me wrong. But like, I don't pretend to be any kind of expert. And I think the number of people who are pretending to be experts is what's kind of concerning. Like nobody knows how this is going to change the security game. And I just think like we need to be talking less about like, what are the potential whatever and actually solving for like, okay, here are the things that might happen. How do we then use AI to like plug those holes or, you know, I don't know. It feels like there's not enough of like the scenario planning and more just the catastrophizing of like the potential things that can happen. And, um, and again, I don't know what, the negative stuff. Yes. There's all of the issues of, um, play plagiarizing, right? Like uh, is, uh, generative. Yes. Generative AI is learning off of the backs of other people and all of that. I have no idea how to solve that. I feel like when people ask me, how do you solve homelessness? Like everybody's got an opinion about that, but nobody actually knows how to do it. And it's such a bigger conversation than like this piece or this piece or this piece. It's like all of them because, You can't just be like, oh, we can't use generative AI because it's stealing from people because it brings so much absolute good into the world. There's no question, but it's an enabler and it's also, you know, something that comes with a lot of bad and controversy and it goes like, how do we regulate it and make sure that we're not just taking people's ideas? And I'm guessing that much like the internet, right? Like we figured out ways that you to doesn't stop plagiarizing on the internet, but used to be rampant in a way that it's not anymore. Like when the internet first came on, anyone could claim that they wrote something and there was no way to fact check it. And now there's like some guardrails. And again, I have no idea what that looks like, but it seems like as an industry, it's something that we need to start like the solutions for how we contain and and protect it need to grow up with the industry itself rather than coming later as like, oh, shit's gone bad. So how do we fix it now? Yeah, like we keep doing that, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Let's let's start sooner rather than later on that one, please. Yeah. And there are companies doing that, which I do think like it it and that that's what makes me feel a, like I think a little bit more optimistic is it seems like this time around there are people saying okay, this is dangerous. So how do we do this responsibly? And whether or not they'll be successful, I have no idea, but at least the conversation is happening versus okay. You know, how long did the internet and connected computers exist before there were viruses, before that even occurred to us that that should be something we should worry about? It was a long time. So, yeah, right. Yeah, we need to find those people and listen to them. Yeah. People smarter than us. Yes. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, Okay. So we're coming up to time here. So I want to ask two final questions. So one, I actually kind of think you you kind of already answered, but I want to hear your opinion anyway, because I think you already have a lot of superpowers as someone who has ADHD and you're embracing your own mind in a different way. But if you could have any superpower that you wanted to improve cybersecurity as a whole, as an industry, what would it be? What would you do? It would be the, like the power of... And yes, this does kind of go into the old, it would be to like wake everybody up, you know, how in like Sleeping Beauty, the the fairies can put everyone to sleep and then wake everybody up. I just want to like 
spread this awakening to everybody without the disaster of this really matters, right? We don't need to have, um, you know, some terrible event happen, catastrophe for suddenly everyone to realize how much cybersecurity matters. So yeah. my superpower would be to just like bibbity bobbity boop, suddenly everyone being like, oh my God, we have this unmitigated disaster that is just brewing that we're not solving. Holy shit, let's fix this. And then we fix it. But, you know, wishful thinking, I know. Uh, but I do think like, if there was energy behind, this is a really scary thing, and it wasn't just a business problem, then I think people would care. But it's just framed as a business issue. And, you know, even in my past, one of the main marketing things we did was, you know, if you get breached, that takes a huge um, hit to your brand and your brand equity and whatever. But, like, of course it's a business issue, and of course that matters. But it's also just, like... It's a, it's a, it's a war issue and it's a, yeah. you know, criminal issue. And it's a, something that should matter to like the everyday person. And it just doesn't. Yeah. Well, I wish that you could have that superpower too. And I feel like that's a good, uh, I mean, if that could happen like overnight, that would be awesome. I feel like the, for the cybersecurity awareness month content that I'm seeing coming out, like that would be really great. And I know there are a lot of people who would do the same thing in a heartbeat if they could, you know, like we're, the, especially when it talks, when we talk about like, the, the sort of end user and what problems they struggle with and how they can improve their security. Like that would be so great to just, yeah, sprinkle some fairy dust over the whole population. Yeah, totally. Bibbidi bobbidi boop. Bibbidi bobbidi boop. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you on the internet? How can they connect with you? Yeah, well, definitely LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. If you use Post, the newer social media network, I'm at Becca on Post, and I am posting there all the time. And I have a website, which is www.beccahasadhd.com, which just kind of has more about me and what I'm doing and links to things that I've written in my bylines. And of course, you can contact me um, there. And I love to have conversations if you want to talk about cybersecurity or neurodiversity or brand and communications, you know where to find. Fabulous. Okay, thank you so much, Becca. We really appreciate you joining us today on Cybersecurity Standup, and we'll see you out there in cyberspace.